Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking why conspiracy theories work with our guest, Kasim Kassam. Two things always come to mind when I discuss conspiracy theories. The first is an interesting factoid I learned from an online documentary. They could never have faked the moon landing in 1969 because technology wasn't advanced enough. (laughs) Apparently, it's harder to instantaneously convert live video to slow motion than it is to land on the lunar surface. The second is a quote from the television show The X-Files. Agent Scully challenges her partner's assertions about government cover-ups by reminding him that, quote, these are the people who created the Susan B. Anthony dollar. If you recall, the American government stopped minting the coin because it was the same size as a quarter. People and vending machines kept confusing the two. It was an unparalleled example of mass incompetence. I like these anecdotes because they're about different things. The first reference is facts and tries to refute a conspiracy by using reason and science. The second seeks to alter someone's willingness to believe. One is about truth. The other is about people. Challenging conspiracy theories requires a complex mixture of both. Most people who believe them do so precisely because they appear contrary to how things seem. Not being obvious is their virtue. They represent secret knowledge that makes believers feel special, and this is why philosophers have such a hard time engaging them. From its inception, philosophy has tried to separate argument from arguer. With a few exceptions, philosophers have held firmly to the notion that a cogent presentation of logic and evidence can move even the most recalcitrant thinker. If we could only curtail emotion, bias, ignorance, and ego, the tradition tells us, we could persuade people of every truth— Appearance is not reality. Your moral and religious worldviews are inaccurate. You're not more important than anyone else. Reason is what makes human beings different from animals, the Greeks insisted. As such, logic can best motivate what has come to be called cognitive change. The popularity of conspiracy theories changes this. Objective fact and well-constructed inferences don't seem to convince people they're wrong about, for example, Democrats running a pedophile ring in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizzeria that has no basement, vaccines causing autism even though hundreds of years and billions of data points show otherwise, or Jews controlling the world despite being the most victimized and displaced ethno-religious group in history. Conspiracy theories aren't just wrong. They're catastrophic to the Western philosophical account of human nature. On today's episode, we're going to face this head on. We'll ask what makes a conspiracy theory different from other false beliefs, explore their purpose and tenacity, and ask about the people who believe them, not just the details of the theories themselves. This will require a mix of philosophy, psychology, sociology, and politics. It should be fun. But there is a problem, though, and I'll call it contempt. The thing about conspiracy theories is that people who don't believe them judge harshly those who do, considering them at best ignorant dupes and at worst racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, homophobic fascists. Adherents also feel analogously about those who don't believe. They call the skeptics slurs like sheeple or libtards. They consider them expendable and legitimate targets of abuse or violence. Both groups think they're better than the other. 
So it becomes very difficult to separate the veracity from the venom. Ironically, this is where philosophy really helps. The same commitments that make conspiracy theories so problematic to philosophers, the separation of fact and belief, the divorcing of truth claims from those who make them, the bifurcating of reason and emotion, these allow philosophers to look at the phenomena more dispassionately. On the show today, we can ask whether a conspiracy theory is racist without condemning those who spread it. We can challenge the details of a narrative without belittling proponents who assert connections that are not really there. Philosophy's analytic method can help us disarm the weapons that conspiracy theories have become. Now, I don't mean to claim that some conspiracy theories aren't dangerous or that some people don't need to be reined in. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that the topic is much more complicated and nuanced than we're usually led to believe. Our conversation shouldn't be about who's wrong and who's crazy, but what purpose these theories serve and who benefits from spreading them. But here I'm anticipating our guest, and I should leave those recommendations for him to make. In preparation, then, I offer this. Whatever one believes or rejects, we cannot doubt that conspiracy theories play a key role in the conflicts of our day. If we don't take them seriously, we give them more power. Philosophy may be an ineffective antidote, but it is an excellent tool for understanding. If we have learned anything from human history, it's that the things we don't interrogate are infinitely more dangerous than the things we do. If philosophy gets nothing else right, it gets this. And now our guest, Kasim Kassam, is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Warwick in England. He has written six books on a range of subjects, including 2019's aptly titled Conspiracy Theories. Kasim, welcome to Why. Hello, it's great to be here. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at Y Radio Show, W-H-Y Radio Show. You can always email us at askyundedu and listen to our previous episodes for free at yradioshow.org. All right. So, Kasim, the, the phrase conspiracy theory seems to be inherently negative. Even in my monologue, I sort of I treat it as something to overcome. Is this unfair? Is the term itself distorting the debate? Well, I think you're absolutely right that the way the term is used today is is very often uh, negative. Uh, to describe something as a conspiracy theory uh, in the eyes of many people is to, is to dismiss it. Um, but of course, it's a further question whether the label conspiracy theory has to be used that way. Um, and there are people who think that we should use it in a more in a more neutral and more judgmental way as well. Is, I, I, I don't know how to, I don't want to hop on the self-reference thing right away, but is it a conspiracy theory that conspiracy theories are so powerful? Uh, are we making too much of them or are they really, do they really have the impact that we think people, that, that people think they have? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, one thing that people sometimes accuse me of is being a conspiracy theorist about conspiracy theories. Um, and and I think there's something in, in, in the idea that, um, you, you know, going on about the power and influence of conspiracy theories and the people who put, put them forward is itself a kind of conspiracy theory. But if it is, then I think it's a true one. So maybe that has some bearing on you know, a key question here, which is um, when we talk about conspiracy theories, should we be building into the label that conspiracy theories are false? Um, or again, is there a more neutral way of, of using the label? 
So would a true conspiracy theory just be a conspiracy <laughs> or is a true conspiracy theory still a conspiracy theory? Well, if it's a conspiracy theory, it's got to be a theory. Right? That's, the, that's, the, that's the minimal condition. Um, and so if you think about what a, you know, what a conspiracy is to begin with, uh, so supposing you think that a conspiracy is when you have a small group of people working together in secret to do something bad. Uh, so then a conspiracy theory looks like it's just a theory that explains some happening, usually a significant happening, by blaming it on a conspiracy. Um, and that seems a perfectly um, a neutral description. And it's built into that description that you have a theory here. Um, but that way of understanding conspiracy theories then raises all sorts of further questions that I guess we need to go into. Like what? Okay, so here's an example. Um, I think this is always a really great example to start off with. Supposing you are thinking about um, the official account of 9-11, that is to say the account of 9-11 given in the report of the 9-11 Commission, and you're comparing that with the inside job theory of 9-11, that's to say that 9-11 was an inside job that was planned and executed by people working on behalf of the Bush administration. Okay, so question, which of these is a conspiracy theory? Now, the first thing to notice is that both of these theories explain 9-11 by reference to a conspiracy. Okay, so in the case of the inside job theory, the conspiracy is one involving the Bush administration. In the case of the official account of 9-11, the conspiracy was an Al-Qaeda conspiracy. So both of these, both of these accounts of 9-11, both of these theories certainly posit a conspiracy to explain what happened. So the question I would want to ask is, okay, so, so are, are they both conspiracy theories then? Now, if you understand conspiracy theory in the very neutral way that I understood it, then it looks as though they are both conspiracy theories. But on the face of it, there seems to be something a little bit odd to describe the official account of 9-11 as a conspiracy theory. I mean, people don't go around saying, I mean, people, you know, attack the 9-11 Commission report, but they generally don't attack it by saying, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory, right? So that seems to suggest that when we talk about conspiracy theories, we actually distinguish between um, um, what you might call big C, big T conspiracy theories. Um, that's theories like the inside job theory um, and conspiracy theories in a kind of small C, small T sense. That's to say theories that just explain something by reference to a conspiracy but uh, but I think the question for your you know your listeners is is you know do you think that these two theories are conspiracy theories in the same sense? And I want to say no, they aren't. I mean, there might be a sense in which they're both conspiracy theories, but they are conspiracy theories in very different senses, and that's a kind of absolutely fundamental point. I think sort of three aspects of of the comparison that come to mind as you're talking. The first is that one is official and one is unofficial. The second is one has clear evidence, also official evidence, and one doesn't. And the third is that one has a particular set of bad guys and the other has a different set of bad guys. And who, who thinks those people are the bad guys may change. Is what we're going to call a conspiracy theory, is it a personal 
criteria or is it something like uh, what we're calling capital C conspiracy theory has to have an unofficial element, has to have harder to find evidence, has to have a non sort of obvious bad guy? Yeah. Okay. So I, th- I think you've, you've, you've actually just hit the nail on the head there, right? So if you go back to your, your initial set of contrasts, uh, so one was the contrast between official and unofficial. So, so one big difference between the uh, 9-11 Commission report and the inside job view is that, uh, is that one is the official view and the other is contrary to the official view. Um, and so I want to say that the theories that are, are most commonly referred to as conspiracy theories, that is to say conspiracy theories with a big C and a big T, are contrary to the official view. Um, so that seems to me to be at least a, a, a core feature of conspiracy theories in that sense. I mean, there are there are one or two wrinkles with that, but, but let's just stick with that simple characterization. Then you talked about, um, you know, the kind of the kind of evidence that there is for these theories. And again, I, I think there's a that you know, there's a key contrast here that the official report of the 9-11 Commission is based on a whole mass of, um, of, of evidence um, about uh, Al-Qaeda's involvement in 9-11. Um, whereas the inside job theory of 9-11, by its nature, has got to be highly speculative, right? Because if it's, if it's a conspiracy, then good conspirators don't leave um, uh, evidence behind. So, it, you know, by their nature, these theories are not going to have the same kind of evidential base as the official as the official view uh and then the third thing that you said was well you know these two theories have different bad guys and and you know i think that's another you know very important point that in the case of the official report of the 911 commission i mean the bad guys were members of a terrorist organization that were attacking america attacking the american state american government american people whereas in the case of the inside job theory, the bad guys are the government. The bad guys are the state itself. And that's another, I think, important feature of big C, big T conspiracy theories. So, you know, so they're contrary to the official view. They are highly speculative and they usually identify the government itself or agents of the government as the bad guys. Is this sort of thing, especially the the, the last example, uh, I'll call it culturally idiosyncratic. And, and what I mean by this is, right, you're out of England. Um, I'm in the United States. Are the English going to have not just, you know, different conspiracy theories? You're going to have a theory about the Duke of something or other, and I'll have a theory about mm. the governor of something or other. But are the English going to have different types of conspiracy theories and different understandings of uh what realm the conspiracies exist in as the Americans? Or have you found that, you know, England, America, Indian, uh, Chinese, basically conspiracy theories have that same cross-cultural structure? I I think they have the same cross-cultural structure. I mean, in the UK, um, as a child, um, I, uh, like lots of children, celebrated something called Guy Fawkes Day, which is November the 5th. Uh, so Guy Fawkes Day celebrates uh, an, uh, or marks an attempt in 1605 um, by a group of Catholic conspirators to blow up the British Parliament. Right? So, so, 
you know, there you have a conspiracy theory, um, a, a, a conspiracy theory about what a, a bunch of people did to, uh, to overthrow the government. Um, but if you look at, you know, a, a popular conspiracy theory in the UK today, um, so one popular theory is that uh, Princess Diana was the victim of a, of a hit uh, organized by uh, the royal family. Right now, I mean that's a that's a classic conspiracy theory that's actually quite different from the Guy Fawkes theory, right? Because because it, it, of course in the in the Diana theory, it's not uh, outsiders conspiring against the establishment; it's the establishment conspiring against uh, outsiders, effectively. Um, and 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 so that's that's the that's the exact same feature um, of of conspiracy theories in the UK context that I identified uh, in the US context, which is that you know conspiracy theories today are are, are basically theories, very often theories about um, uh, people in positions of power um, abusing their power. Um, by conspiring against the rest of us. And I think that is an absolutely fundamental feature of the, the modern conspiracy theory. And, and in a little bit, I, I want to talk about that. I want to ask a question. Again, it's not perfectly formed, and it's a little tangential from, I know, the stuff that, that, that you've written uh, that I've read, but you bring up Guy Fawkes. And most Americans will know Guy Fawkes from the mask, right? The classic mask that has become... Uh, a symbol. It was in the movie V for Vendetta. It, it, it has become a symbol of rebellion, I'm sure, in part because of the history. Does when a pop culture takes a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy and uses it for its own purposes, does that give more credence to the idea of conspiracy theories? Does it make it more powerful and believable or does it um, disarm the conspiracy theories because now in some sense we're all part of the same game? I, I think it does give it additional um, power. I, I mean, one thing that, that if, if you're a critic of conspiracy theories um, as, as I am, I mean, one thing that people often say is that, you know, the thing about conspiracy theories is that they hold the powerful to account. Um, and if you just dismiss these theories, then you're essentially just a kind of lackey of, 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 of the powerful or a lackey of government. Um, and and, and you, you, certainly if you think about um, so, something like, uh, like, like Guy Fawkes, I mean, there you have um, um, a, 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 a theory about people taking on power. Um, trying to trying to overthrow the uh, established power, but the difference is in that case, the thing that was taking on the establishment was the actual conspiracy. Right? Whereas today, the thing that's supposedly taking on the establishment are theories, conspiracy theories. Um, so, so people who put these theories forward, I mean, people who put forward, you know, conspiracy theories about nine eleven, you know, for them, it's it, it's often a kind of expression of suspicion about. You know the Bush administration and its Iraq um, policy. Uh, so, so what happens is that is that a, a certain kind of criticism of of, of government or skepticism about government um, takes the form um, of a conspiracy theory. Uh, and you know, and then the question is, if you if you want to attack the government, if you want to criticize the people in positions of power and privilege, are these theories actually? 
the most effective um, way of of doing it. And and, and I want to say, you know, that they're not. And and again, after the break, I, I want to talk uh, specifically about these political dimensions. But you're hinting at something which you refer to in the book as the Oliver Stone defense. And, and, and let me ask you what you mean, because there's there's the question of the conspiracy theory being true. But then there's the question of, well, the conspiracy theory may not be true, but it's a stand in for what's true. It's it's symbolic. It's analogous. It doesn't get it right, but it gets the essence accurate. And why is this the Oliver Stone defense and why is this? an approach worth thinking about as opposed to just saying, look, conspiracy theories are true or they're not. And if they're true, they're valuable. If they're not, they're not. So Oliver Stone uh, uh, was the director of a movie uh, that came out in the 1990s called JFK about the Kennedy assassination. Um, so so in, in that movie, I mean, essentially the movie proposes one, if not multiple conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination. Um, and when the movie came out, it was attacked by people who know about these things for a whole bunch of of, of um, inaccuracies in its portrayal of those of those events. I mean, as a piece of history, I think the movie is an absolute travesty. Um, so, so when confronted by these criticisms, uh, Oliver Stone said something to the effect that, well, you know, um, maybe maybe the things that I was saying in the movie weren't literally true, um, but they were nevertheless, uh, they captured a deeper truth about the deep state and government. And in that sense, the movie is truthful, even if not literally true. Um, and I think this this kind of brings out a really important aspect of conspiracy theories. You know that conspiracy theories are stories, they're narratives. Um, and they're supposedly, you know, they're stories with a lesson, stories with a moral. They're kind of mor- essentially morality tales. And one of the um, lessons of conspiracy theories today is is supposed to be um, something about, you know, the evils of the deep state or the corruption uh, and malfeasance of people in positions of power. Now, I mean, you know, if you were a if you were a kind of on 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 the political left, um, you know, you might be very sympathetic to those sorts of criticisms um, of the state of the world today. Um, but uh, you know, are conspiracy theories the best way to give expression to those sorts of criticisms? To give expression to that kind of skepticism? And and I guess what I want to say is that is that you know there are a whole bunch of reasons for not going down that path. You know that if you if you think that the government is up to no good or that the state has too much power, that politicians are corrupt. I mean, there are perfectly legitimate ways of making that case without resorting to conspiracy theories. Um, and I think that's what you know. One of the things I'd want to say to to to, to um, people on the liberal wing of politics who who endorse conspiracy theories, which is, you know, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say uh, the things, some of the things that you, you want to say. We're going to have to take a break. When we get back, I'm going to ask you a version of this question, uh, which is given what you just said, are conspiracy theories a form of literature and have they, have they replaced protest literature, so to speak? And then, and then we'll move on to, uh, 
the epistemological versus uh, political defenses, which which I'll explain all that when we get back. But before then, we'll take a break. You're listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Kasim Kassam right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussion About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Kasim Kassam about conspiracy theories. And and I was going to talk about something else, but but right before the break, I did something which I then spent the last the next 30 seconds thinking about, which is, you know, normally I say uh, you're listening to Why Philosophical Discussion About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. But what I actually said was you're listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Kasim Kassam right after this, which makes no sense, but it sounds good. The rhythms of my language um, were such that you probably didn't notice, but now I'm going to obsess over. I feel like the conspiracies that we talk about every day follow that pattern. I have had two colleagues, one who's passed away and, and, and one who is still my colleague, who have been absolutely convinced that there have been conspiracies to destroy the humanities at the University of North Dakota, that the goal of the administration is just to obliterate our department. And then any time they make a decision, it adds fuel to that fire. I have another colleague in the English department who always says, don't confuse being evil with being incompetent, <laughs> that, 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 that sometimes you make bad decisions and it looks like you're being evil when actually you're just making mistakes. I bring that example up, those examples up, Kasim, because I wonder how much of conspiracy theory is about the sound of truth, the rhythm of truth, and the assumptions um, that there's bad intentions behind things that actually just sort of happened. Um, I, I think that is at a psychological level one of the really important features of um, of conspiracy theories. Um, so psychologists uh, talk about um, what they call cognitive biases, um, and one bias that people talk about is is, is um, something called intentionality bias, uh, which is basically the assumption that things happen, particularly bad things happen, because someone intended for them to happen. They don't just happen by chance or by accident or simply as a result of people's uh, incompetence. Um, and, and I think that is an important um, kind of psychological driver uh, of, of, of conspiracy theories. I mean, if you think about the, you know, the pandemic um, and the, all that stuff about, um, you know, the virus being manufactured in a lab in, in China or being circulated via 5G masks and something about Bill Gates' involvement. I mean, um, all, all of those are attempts to kind of say that, look, this just didn't happen. It was no accident. You know, it had, all of this stuff happened because it was intended to happen. Uh, and I think that is, um, you know, a common enough 
um, cognitive bias that human beings uh, su suffer from. Um, and I think there are a whole bunch of other psychological drivers of uh, belief in, in, in conspiracy theories. And, and you know, one, one kind of broad issue to, here to think about is to what extent can we really give a kind of complete explanation of belief in conspiracy theories in psychological terms by reference to these sorts of psychological features? So, so I, I mean, I think that we, we can't give a complete explanation, but psychology is obviously is important. I, I think about, you know, those days when I'm in a bad mood and I stub my toe or something and I, and I just I say to the universe or to God or whatever, you know, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> right? What am I being punished yeah. for? And, and it feels yeah. like that that same sort of thing, which brings me back to the question I ended with before the sort of the human search for a grand narrative, the human search for um, explanations that are understandable to us. Can conspiracy theories play the role that literature has historically played in terms of giving meaning in our life, giving agency to, to things that, that we need to have agency? Does, is, is that a coherent way of looking at it at all? Uh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, the analogy I would draw actually is, is, is not with literature, but, but actually with, with religious belief. I mean, if you think about um, a, a kind of religious mindset. Uh, you know, one important aspect of this mindset is the idea that um, the way the world is today, it didn't just happen by chance. You know, that somebody, namely God, uh, was pulling the strings, uh, designed things in a certain way, and that's why they are as they are. So there you have a kind of, you know, the most global grand explanation imaginable. Uh, and for lots of people, I mean, the point of this explanation is that it gives it gives what would otherwise seem quite random events, it gives them meaning. Um, and I think conspiracy theories are like, you know, in a way like that. So if you think about, uh, again, the pandemic, um, if you think it's just one of these random mutations that happened um, because of, you know, interaction between humans and animals in a, uh, in a market in, in China – um, it, the whole thing just seems utterly meaningless and arbitrary. There is no deeper meaning. It's just, it's, it would, you know, the pandemic is just a is just a, a you know a case of uh, um, stuff happening. Um, but if you think that somebody is is is, is, to, uh, is responsible for the pandemic by manufacturing and then deliberately releasing a virus, then you've got two things now that human beings you know value. First of all, you ha now have an you know an explanation. Um, for why the pandemic happened now it's no longer random it's someone's doing and the other thing that you now have is of course someone to blame um, so this is like you know you stubbing your toe right uh, what have i done to deserve this so, uh, so so again the thought would be well what have we done to deserve the pandemic we uh, so, so you look for someone to you know to blame and that's what the coronavirus conspiracy theory um you know, gives you, um, and, and I think that at least the explanatory dimension is is, as I say, quite similar to uh, the thinking that underpins some, you know, some religious belief. It's the search. It's the search for meaning, the desire to avoid having to say that you know bad stuff happens just because some people are incompetent or it's just bad luck. Um, it, it's the difficulty people have living with that. 
that I think um, makes them prone to believe in conspiracy theories. And is this, um, I don't know, a call by the desperate? I mean, I, 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 I rec- in, in your book at one point, you're, you're quoting, uh, you're citing some studies and you say that people who are conspiracy minded are more likely to see themselves at being the bottom of the social ladder, that they've thought seriously about committing suicide. They have trouble sleeping. They feel less able to rely on family or friends in the event of a crisis. Does, does the, does the imparting of meaning give people power as well? Because, I mean, what strikes me about that is, is that when I hear some of these conspiracy theories, if, if, if it turned out that some of these things were true, I would feel worse about the world and, and feel like I have less power than if they weren't true. So why do people who are feeling despondent gravitate towards these things that make life more awful? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I mean, you know, so there are these studies which suggest that that essentially that um, people who are marginalized are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than, than people who aren't. Um, and, 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 and so the, then you might ask, well, what's the attraction of believing a theory where, you know, all this bad stuff is happening because somebody actually wanted it to happen? And I suppose the attraction is the feeling that you have some sort of special insight or that you, you have you have a kind of knowledge or understanding that uh, other people don't have, and there's a certain sort of satisfaction in in you know in this in in this feeling of being special, of having s- special knowledge. But I, I think at the same time, it, it's also important to draw a distinction between people who believe or consume conspiracy theories and people who promote conspiracy theories. So so it may well be that that. You know, consumers of conspiracy theories are attracted by these theories in part by, the, you know, the fact that these theories give them um, uh, kind of in, uh, some sort of satisfaction um, uh, in, in believing them. But the people who promote these theories, I think for them, there's something completely, um, completely different going on. And I don't even think that the people who promote conspiracy theories necessarily believe these theories themselves. So in that case, the whole question, why do they believe them is a non-question. This is an excellent transition to the to the other aspects of your analysis, because you offer three basic frameworks. You offer the the psychological, which is what we've been talking about, explanations, uh, psychological explanations for conspiracy theories. But then you also distinguish between the epistemological and the political. And epistemology in philosophy is theory of knowledge. And so what that means is you're distinguishing between um Dealing with, refuting, understanding conspiracy theories as a problem of knowledge and argument and evidence and persuasion versus conspiracy theories as political tools, as propaganda, as 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 ways of maintaining or 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 acquiring power. So would you talk a little bit about the distinction between the epistemological and political approaches? And we seem so stuck in the epistemological why we should move from one to the other. Well, I think the people who are stuck in the epistemological are, are philosophers, um, epistemologists who write about questions like, you know, is belief in conspiracy theories um, uh, ju- justified? Uh, is there, that is to say, is there good evidence for belief in these theories? And if there isn't, then does that show that people who believe these theories are intellectually defective in some way. So that's the kind of epistemological approach. I, I, um, I want to interrupt I, for uh, just a second. I apologize. Um, but at least in some way, and tell me if I'm wrong, 
YouTube and, and all the Internet is stuck in this mode because when you when you follow the 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 rabbit holes in conspiracy theories, what you get is a lot of people arguing about details and arguing about facts. This is true. This is not true. Um the CIA was involved in in Kennedy. No, the CIA was focused on the Bay of Pigs, and you know, and that um and and like the example that I used in the beginning, where you know slow motion videography was not technically uh, viable at that point. Is that still the epistemological framework because you're you're arguing about details, or did I misunderstand? No, that's still that's still epistemological. I mean, that's that's epistemological in the sense that now you're looking at what the actual evidence is for a particular theory. Um, what philosophers are interested in is not just questions about you know what the actual evidence is for a particular theory, but questions about the nature of evidence and whether um, people are um, being irrational in believing conspiracy theories. Um, so, so th- this is all you know, looking at these theories as you know genuine attempts to tell the truth. Um, and then the question is, uh, are they successful in those terms? Are we justified in believing that they are successful? That's the epistemological approach. But you um, think that that's uh, a dead end and we need to move to a, a different framework of understanding? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, so, 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 so I want to say that, that, that you know, the, the, the essence of conspiracy theories is that they are political Um conspiracy theories are there typically as an expression of a person's political outlook and they are there to promote usually a political agenda. So let me just kind of give you a couple of examples. So in the US, um, there's research that shows that um, um, birthers um, about President Obama are much more likely to be Republicans, whereas truthers are much more likely to be Democrats. So, you know, that's one nice illustration of the way that, you know, which particular conspiracy theories, theories, if any, you believe is going to be tied to your uh, background political um, political beliefs. Uh, and I think that's a really, a really kind of key point, because the psychologists you know, talk, tell us, you know, why people believe conspiracy theories, but they don't tell us why they believe the particular conspiracy theories they believe. And I want to say that you really can't answer that question without looking at people's background, political uh, commitments. Um, on the, the business about, you know, um, not just expressing one's political views, but advancing one's political agenda. Um, I mean, there are, you know, there are kind of many examples of that. Um, I mean, I like the one, you know, the example of, um uh, the you know, Sandy Hook conspiracy theories. So the idea that that uh, the Sandy Hook shooting was a was a false flag. Um, you know, why would anybody believe that? I mean, you know, from my perspective, that just seems completely absurd and and baseless. Um, but if you think of it as a, as if you think of it in political terms, it starts to make you know a lot more sense, right? So if you um, um, have a have a an, an anti gun control political agenda then obviously events like Sandy Hook are going to be a problem for you, right? Uh, because, it, you know, they might increase support for greater gun control. So how do you deal with that? Well, by saying it never happened, you know, by, by promoting a conspiracy theory. Um, and, and, and a lot of conspiracy theories um, um, have this sort of kind of broader political stroke ideological agenda. That's really what these theories 
you know, are for. And if you think about the people who promote these theories, you know, so think about whoever first came up with the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory. I mean, why did they do it? What were they trying to achieve by promoting this theory? Did they promote this theory because they actually believed it or because it fitted in with um, a kind of political agenda? So I want to say that, that you know, it, this is a really fundamental feature of conspiracy theories that you just miss out if you just focus on the epistemology, you know, conspiracy theories are political. Indeed, I want to say that, um, you know, that the classic conspiracy theories are really forms of political um, uh, propaganda. And that is actually rather fundamental to what these uh, what these theories are. So so uh, something that comes to mind when I'm thinking about the associations that you're talking about is the conversation that I had um, in the other radio show that I do, Philosophical Currents, where I talked about this meme that was going around that said, you know, someone wrote, uh, how do I tell if someone is, vac- is vaccinated and someone isn't? And someone responded, ask them who they voted for, <laughs> right? That, that the Republican right. Trump voters um, are going to believe the vaccination conspiracy theories and the non-Trump voters are not. And that also makes me think of, um, you know, I mentioned and you mentioned quite often in the book the, the various anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And, you know, for millennia, uh, Christians in particular have believed horrible things about Jews, but this was a political move endorsed by the church that was the political uh, power at the time, whether it was, you know, what we now call the Catholic Church or or various other denominations. This, too, is political, right? So so even if the the sort of the laity or, or your average religious person just believes the story because they're told, the clergy has political reasons to advance this theory to i'll put it simply uh to 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 you know to 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 beat their competitors right i mean that's what you mean by political as well right yeah i i I mean that's right so so, you know so politics is absolutely absolutely everywhere um i mean if you think about you know the protocols of the elders of zion i mean i don't know how well known this is to your to your listeners but but you know the protocols were were a forgery dating back to the early 20th century um purporting to describe a secret meeting of jewish elders plotting world domination um now the author of this forgery i think was a member of the russian secret um police um and of course the whole thing is a is it is a complete fabrication but the thing about the protocols is that they, you know, they caught on. Um, so in, in, in the States, um, Henry Ford was very active in distributing free copies of the protocols. The protocols were taken up by the Nazis. They were quoted approvingly by Hitler in Mein Kampf. Um, and they are, the, you know, the, the, in a way, they are the archetype for all subsequent anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories, right? And so, so then you ask the question, okay, so what, you know, well, how do we understand anti-Semitism? What is that? Um, well, you know, I mean, that is, as you as you said, you can think of that, you should think of that, not just as, as racist, but also as political. Uh, so if you think of conspiracy theories today, you know, that, that conspiracy theories directed against George Soros uh, or theories that identify the conspirators by emphasizing uh, their Jewish names, like, you know, Rothschild and so on, um, it, it, the, these theories fit into a part of a long uh, anti-Semitic um, conspiracy tradition. Uh, and, and that is one 
you know, really, really fundamental sense in which these theories are, you know, are political. Uh, anti-Semitism isn't the only political objective of conspiracy theories, but it's it's historically been a very, a very central one. So, so we had uh, last year uh, Jason Stanley on the show. We talked about propaganda, and one of the things that he talked about was the fact that the QAnon conspiracy is pretty much a mixture of uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and um, the, the um, what's called the blood libel, the, the idea that Jews have killed Jesus and the Messiah and, and Christian children. And, and we end up talking about propaganda in detail. You make an analogous move by suggesting that we need to understand conspiracy theories, at least in some form, as a kind of propaganda, right? You actually uh, quote Jason in, in the book why should we start thinking about those two things in tandem? What, what do conspiracies, what does propaganda have that helps us understand conspiracy theories? Okay. So let's just take a step back. Right. So, so I think that, that, you know, quite often, if you want to understand what a thing is, um, it's really helpful to ask the question, what does it do? What's it for? Right. So if you, uh, uh, if you want to understand what a carburetor is, a good way to understand that is to understand what a carburetor does in a, in a car engine. So with conspiracy theories, I, a good start is, you know, what are these theories for? What purpose do they serve? Uh, so as I've just ex- ex- said, I think that they serve the purpose of uh, promoting um, various political agendas, including uh, anti-Semitic and other extremist political agendas. So why talk about uh, why talk about you know propaganda in this context? Well, you know propaganda is basically any form of writing or any image um, that is uh, that tries to uh, influence people's beliefs by uh, manipulating their emotions, and I think that that's exactly what. Uh, conspiracy theories do. They try to influence people's political beliefs um, by um, telling uh, seductive stories that um, play on people's uh, play on people's emotions. Uh, and, and, and and of course these stories are not just stories, they're stories that have you know terrible consequences, real world consequences. If you think of the um, the role of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the Holocaust, you know, that's an example of, you know, a story, uh, I mean, a ridiculous story, having an incredible, uh, terrible, catastrophic real-world impact. Um, and, 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 and I think it's, it, 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 I, I quote Jason because I think it is actually really helpful to think in terms of a kind of propaganda model um, of of conspiracy theories. So, if you're presented with a conspiracy theory, you know, a first question you should ask yourself is, what is this theory trying to achieve? What is its purpose? What is its agenda? And of course, that's a sort exactly the sort of question that conspiracy theorists themselves like to ask. So, I think it's fair enough to ask it about them and their theories. So, so this leads us to reconsider something that we talked about in the very beginning of the discussion, where we talked about the distinction between an official explanation and a not, and an unofficial explanation, because we're living right now in a revival of a certain kind of polit- uh, conspiracy theory. The the Trump administration and the and the Trump candidacy, and and of course uh, many of of Trump's followers. Um, are just swimming in conspiracy theories and reveal new ones at the same time. In England, Boris Johnson, the Brexit folks, um, 
they had their own stories to tell, which, you know, in my opinion, has led to terrible consequences. Um, so if if the leadership in, you know, the democracies are spouting conspiracy theories, what does that say about the condition that, well, conspiracy theories tend to be an unofficial rather than an official explanation? Yeah, so that that's why that's why I said that you know that criterion for being a conspiracy theory is, is kind of complicated, right? So if you if you if you wind the clock back, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years ago, and you said, well, what's the official view? Um, uh, well, the official view is you know the view of the government. It's the view of the federal government in the states. That's the official view. Um, the, the, I think w- with Trump, things have become kind of much more complicated because although you know Trump. Uh, was the president, um, it doesn't follow that the things that he said um, uh, were the official view. Uh, and that doesn't follow because the Trump presidency was a kind of insurgent presidency, as I, as I see it. Um, I mean, Trump was really a, a, a kind of an outsider um, who for a while took control of, of, of government, but wasn't of the government, wasn't of the of 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 the um, traditional uh, traditional establishment, uh, and and so you know if you then say well if Trump said that there's a conspiracy of such and such a conspiracy, um, how can you say that that's contrary to the official view when it's coming for the from the president? Well, you can still say that because of course this was a president whose views were themselves not the official view. I mean he was a you know a completely um, um, exceptional, uh, you know, character, but, but, but it has, you know, this has sort of muddied the waters in terms of, in terms of figuring out, well, what, you know, what actually, what is the official view? Um, I think that, you know, now that we're in the States, maybe at least temporarily return to you guys, kind of more normal, uh, more normal presidency, um, it's much easier to say that um, the stuff coming from the Biden administration represents, in some sense, the official view, uh, um, uh, whereas you wouldn't have been so comfortable saying that in 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 in, uh, in regards to Trump. Yeah, I can't think of uh, how many conversations I've had where people were saying, well, that's what Trump said, but that's not what he meant or recognizing that what was going on on Twitter or the rallies was was really different. And and so then there are the people who believe that the stuff that Trump says uh, on Twitter is the real stuff and he's playing the government. And then other people who think that the, the stuff that happens in the government is the real stuff and he's playing uh, his followers and and, and it, it becomes tremendously complicated, which, of course, is the world of conspiracy theories, right? I mean, I suppose how you feel about President Trump is itself, I don't want to say, I mean, whether you think, I don't know, Trump itself is a whole Pandora's box of conspiracy theories, including the role that Trump himself plays, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm you know I think I think that the fundamental kind of litmus test really is: Do you think Trump was um, was a victim of a conspiracy? Was he the victim, as he as he as he claimed, or do you think that he is the source of a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that that he was using to advance his own political objectives and to speak to his base? Um, I mean, you won't be surprised to hear that I you know I kind of go for the latter view. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I think this is a really good example of of how a person's view of conspira- of conspiracies and conspiracy theories tells you a hell of a lot 
uh, about their about their politics, right? So if you're an anti-vaxxer, you think Trump was cons- was 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 more conspired against than a con- than, than a conspirator, then that is, uh, I think, places you um, on the uh, on the Republican end of the political spectrum uh, in, in in the in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. context. And you know, again, it's all about the politics. Right? This is all stuff that you can only really engage with at the political level. Uh, no amount of psychological theorizing or epistemological theorizing is really going to get you to the bottom of these uh, of these sorts of questions because they don't really engage with what I think is absolutely fundamental. Conspiracy theories are political. And this also helps to explain the way that people's personal experience or collective experience primes them to believe certain kinds of conspiracies and not others. You talk a little bit about the African-American experience and uh, the African-American experience and how the, the Tuskegee experiments prime the black community for believing certain kinds of governmental conspiracies. Would you remind us what that is and talk about how government conspiracies actually help support the conspiracy theory model? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing is that is that you know you, you you're more likely to believe conspiracy theories if you yourself or your community has been the victim of conspiracies. Um, so the Tuskegee syphilis study um, it was was um, a, a, an experiment, a scientific experiment carried out by the public health service where. Before the discovery of uh, an effective treatment for syphilis, 600 um, Im- impoverished African-Americans were recruited and observed over several decades to see the effects of untreated syphilis. Um, but when an effective treatment for syphilis was discovered, they weren't given the treatment. The, the study just, just, just continued and, and, and the whole thing only came to an end in the early 1970s when a whistleblower leaked what was going on. Um, so now, if you think, uh, you know, wind the clock forward to uh, the theory that AIDS was, um, um, or, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of manufactured um, thing um, by the government targeting particular communities, or you, you know, or you think that um, the CIA was uh, responsible for, for distributing drugs in an attempt to. Um, increased levels of addiction in the African-American community. I mean, if you've been the victim of, of, of the Tuskegee experiment, those things don't seem so crazy. Right? If, the gov- if the federal government is capable of pulling a stunt like Tuskegee, what isn't it capable of doing? Um, you know, and so I think that's, you know, that's, a, that's a kind of interesting case of, of people who have you know, been, been victims of conspiracies, the marginalized, um, being susceptible to belief uh, in conspiracy theories. Um, but that's a completely different thing from conspiracy theories being promoted by, you know, the rich and powerful, by conspiracy theories being promoted by people in positions of privilege uh, in defense of um, their own um, their own interests. Um, and, and so when one thinks about the politics of conspiracy theories, I think I think that, you know, there are, there are these two lenses through which you can, you know, through which you can uh, you can view them. So, all right, let's let's take a different tack, and, and and let me ask, 
what do we do about this? Right. I mean, obviously, if we're talking about the Tuskegee history, then we should, you know, not exploit the marginalized and, and, and you know, and tr- treat people better. But there's all the other stuff that is, you know, how do we help people distinguish between the believable and the unbelievable? And how do we help people be more self-critical about their own particular uh tendencies towards one set or another? Well, this is such a difficult question. I mean, you know, as philosophers, we're kind of rather inclined to say things like, well, you know, what what people need to do is, you know, they need to be more open-minded and they need to engage in more critical thinking and, you know, uh, develop these so-called intellectual virtues. And if they did that, they're going to be less inclined to believe in, in conspiracy theories. I mean, the problem with that is that is that, of course, people who believe conspiracy theories think that they are the ones who are open minded, that they're the ones who engage in critical thinking. Um, and and it, it's not, you know, it's not clear that that, that merely uh, um, improving one's intellectual equipment on its own is going to make one less uh, prone to believe conspiracy theories, because that isn't going to address the political and emotional drivers of belief in conspiracy theories. So, if you want to, if you want to, you know, address um, those sorts of things, particularly the political drivers of conspiracy theories. I mean, one thing that I think is is kind of helpful to do is to um, make people more aware of um, the history of conspiracy theories of the anti-Semitic tradition of many conspiracy theories to make people aware of the political agenda of conspiracy uh, theories and also to make people ask difficult questions about the people putting forward these theories, you know, to, to, to actually encourage people to ask questions like, what's in it for the promoters of these theories? What's in it for them? What did they get out of it? What what's the political payoff for them? What's the financial payoff for them? Right? I mean, conspiracy theory is a big business too. Um, and 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 the hope is that that you know by 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 encouraging people to think of these theories in that way uh, is it, it, going to be more effective um, as a way of combating these theories than than you know than homilies about the importance of open mindedness and critical thinking. I just don't think those sorts of things are going to get you. Uh, very far. Not that I'm, you know, not in favor of open-mindedness and critical thinking, but I think they're uh, kind of limited. I think we need to focus on the political dimension and on making people reflect on the political dimension and on the political incentives for people to promote these um, promote these theories. I mean, it, it, it seems to a certain extent that that what you're asking for is uh, a strategic education rather than sort of the standard critical thinking uh, approach. And, and, and this makes me think about the stuff that you were saying you're writing in your book, how a lot of people who are the, the, the proponents of these theories who are the so-called experts using these theories are not experts in the traditional sense of the term, right? That, that they don't have the people who are analyzing the, 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 JFK assassinations are not experts in munitions, right, or, or, or other such things. How does this sort of strategic approach respond to our changing notion of expertise? And does that mean that in the end, all of this is going to be grassroots, chaos, 
um, just each person in it for themselves. Yeah. So this whole issue of expertise, I think, is is really is really tricky. I mean, I, I think it is perfectly true that a lot of people who promote conspiracy theories don't necessarily have the um, uh, credentials to comment on these sorts of issues. Um, um, you know, so in, in the case of the Kennedy assassination, which I talk about, um, there are sort of technical questions about, you know, wound ballistics and bullet trajectories and so on and so forth. And a lot of people who wrote about the uh, assassination didn't really know a whole lot of stuff about that. But, but yeah, and you can certainly point that out to somebody who's inclined to believe these theories. But that's only really going to get you so far because... Um, you know, there's another sort of uh, tradition that, uh, that that's really important. I mean, there is the tradition in our intellectual culture of deferring to experts, which we all do. You know, every time we go to the doctor, we in some sense defer to an expert. But there's a different tradition that conspiracy theorists appeal to, which is really the tradition of make up your own mind, do your own research, think for yourself. Um, and, 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 you know, these are actually perfectly respectable enlightenment ideals. Uh, and... It, it, you know, in some sense, people who uh, believe in conspiracy theories claim to be abiding by those sorts of um, those sorts of I- ideals. So I think that these, uh, you know, that the, the kind of um, playing up the expertise line and saying that you know you don't have the expertise to really make form a view about these things, you know, is only going to get you so far when talking to someone who says, "Well, I'm, you know, I just think it's important that I make up my own mind and think for myself." You know, and there's a whole lot of further conversation to be had about that, but you're not going to get a quick or easy win that way. So that's why I think it's actually, if you're talking about strategic education, um, I, I would say that the strategic education needs to, you know, needs to actually begin with thinking about. You know, how these theories arose, who put them forward, for what purpose did they put them forward? Um, and, 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 and uh, you know, thinking in, in, in those sorts of ways, I think, is going to be more constructive. Uh, I mean, not least because actually those ways of thinking appeal to some aspects of the conspiracy mentality. Right. So the conspiracy mentality is, you know, a, a tendency to ask questions like, you know, Who's behind this? What's in it for them? What do they have to gain from this? Um, and, and I think that really what we need to do is to turn the conspir- that mentality against conspiracy theorists and theorizing itself. Right? So, um, you know, think about some talk show host in the States who has a website selling conspiracy related products. Uh, and who's out there, you know, ranting and raving every day, promoting any number of uh, uh, wild conspiracy theories, you know. So I think the questions we should be encouraging people to ask is: is is what's in it for him? Why is he saying these things? What does he have to gain um, from promoting these theories? And when you actually ask those sorts of questions, um, the answers are actually kind of fairly, you know, fairly obvious. Um, you know, there are political incentives, there are financial incentives to promote these theories. And you can perfectly well explain why somebody would want to promote these theories just on that uh, on that basis alone. Um, and so that's that's what I think of as a kind of you know more strategic approach to um, you know combating conspiracy theories, uh, as well as as well as as I said earlier, 
making sure that people actually know something about the about the history of um, history of conspiracy theories. And I think the protocols of the elders of Zion is is well worth focusing on because in a way that is the you know that is the uber conspiracy theory. You know, somebody once said that you know almost every modern conspiracy theory is just a kind of reworking of the protocols of the elders of Zion using that template and use and and just you know, changing the names and changing the changing the um, objectives. Uh, and, and so, again, getting people to learn about that, I think that's going to be really helpful. So, so uh, I, I guess this is probably the last question, but it's 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 a little it's a compound question, a little convoluted. Um, it's worth mentioning that one of the uh, they found a copy of the Protocols of Elders of Zion on the desk of one of the Capitol Police, uh, who was who was there and not fighting back during the the, the uh, January six uprising. So it's very much present. It was a bestseller fairly recently in in Japan. I mean, the the, the thing has a life, a very vibrant life of its own. And so we're talking about it. And part of me wants to link. <laughs> To, to, to the protocols so that people will see what we're talking about it and read it and get a sense if they've never encountered it before. But then there's other part of me that's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to make it easier to find, even though everything's easy to find on the internet. So, so, so that leads me to the, que- to the two-part question, which is, to what extent does educating people against conspiracy theories actually promote conspiracy theories? Is it, is it just a catch-22? And in the end... Are you feeling optimistic uh, or pessimistic about the future of political discourse, given your work on conspiracy theories and and extremism and terrorism that you've that you've you've uh, done other writing on? So on the first thing, I, I, I don't think that actually educating people about conspiracy theories necessarily promotes them, right? So your dilemma about whether to link to the protocols of the elders of Zion. So I would say, well, no, don't link to them, but there are historical writings. So there's, you know, for example, a book by a historian called Norman Cohn called Warrant for Genocide. That's all about the protocols. You know, so link to that. That's a way to learn about the protocols from a, a really respectable historical source and in a way that won't promote them. Um, on your second question about, you know, am I optimistic or pessimistic in the light of the stuff I've been, you know, I've been working on, um, I, I, I think that I find that a really, a really, really hard, you know, question to answer. Um, the thing that I've, you know, that I kind of got out of the work that I've been doing is just how powerful the drivers are that, that lead people towards extremism, that lead people towards things like conspiracy theories. They really are powerful. Uh, and and I'm not entirely optimistic about our ability to you know to counteract counteract these forces. Um, but you know all you can do is try. You know all you can do is try and and actually you know just keep hammering away on these really basic, simple, elementary points. Um, and and hope hopefully you know if if even you know a couple of people listening to this show come out of it thinking about conspiracy theories differently more skeptically more critically uh well you know that's a win as far as i'm concerned well one of the things i absolutely will link to is your book conspiracy theories because it is a very clear very patient um, and very very accessible task that text that i think that um our listeners will enjoy and find to be a, a, a comfortable read. It's not, it's not overwhelming at all. So Kasim, thank you so much for joining us on why. 
Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. You have been listening to Kasim Kassam and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back with a few thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Kasim Kassam about conspiracy theories. And, you know, he said this thing towards the end, which really, I think, highlights the great dilemma that's in front of us. He said, the conspiracy theorists think they're being open-minded, and they're really expressing the best of our enlightenment values, they're being critical thinkers, they're being detailed, they're trying to look at context, right? The most powerful conspiracy theorists are themselves full, fleshed out, robust accounts of something that happened. Yes, they are often self-contradictory, but they represent good advanced thinking. So the answer to this power of conspiracy theory is not just to say, be more open-minded, be smarter, right? (laughs) Be more critical. Because the people who are proponents of them are doing those very things. Kasim's response to this is to say, look, this is a political question, not a question of knowledge, not an epistemological question. It's a question of understanding that the people who put forth conspiracy theories have things to gain. Maybe it's power, maybe it's money, maybe it's what what Reddit calls invisible internet points, right? Maybe it's just getting likes on your videos, right? People have something to gain. And so when you're looking at a conspiracy theory and you're trying to make sense of whether you should learn more, reject it, share it, ask yourself, who benefits and what do they gain? And the fact of the matter is that this strategy is pretty good for all aspects of life, right? If someone tells you something is true, it's always good to ask, well, what do they get from it being true? Now, sometimes the answer is <laughs> they get a better life or they get new medicine or they get you know a better president. But sometimes it opens the door to a lot more complexity and a lot more insidious motives. And with conspiracy theories, that's the difficulty. It all becomes so complex, so emotional, so psychological, so convoluted that all we have is a strategy of attacking them rather than a solution. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. 
Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. 